The sermon text this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, the heart of his people, shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up and attack, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Broken promises will always disappoint us. I remember even as a little kid, we would go see uh, a relative that we had in another state, and he would always promise to take us hunting or to take us to do something fun and exciting. And it never materialized. I remember as a little kid always thinking, he always makes these promises, but he, he never carries them out. There's a, always a measure of disappointment. You know, broken promises can be a lot more than just disappointing. They can actually be almost despairing when we think about the broken promises of marriage. Vows not kept. I wonder how often have you considered all the suffering that you have endured by people making promises to you that they did not keep? Or maybe considered how you have hurt people by making promises that you didn't keep to them. You know, it's kind of against this backdrop that I want to... Um, I want to consider the promises of God. God makes promises, and God keeps his promises. Uh, Advent is this time of the year, the four weeks prior to Christmas, where we begin to celebrate this idea of Jesus coming as the Messiah. 
Advent means coming. And it's the coming of Jesus that's fulfilling the promise of God. God made a promise to send a Messiah who would come and would save. And not just save, but would shepherd, who would rule, who would purify, who would comfort. That's what we're going to be looking at over these next four weeks. That God has made promises to save, and He'll keep His promises. He won't disappoint us. Do you realize that God has made promises to save? I mean, the broken, the weak, the disenfranchised, God has promised to save them. This is The amazing thing about the promises of God is they start in the beginning of the Bible. This isn't a new promise. I mean, if you, if you think about it, so many of us, we come to religion thinking that, well, I've got to clean myself up, I've got to get my life in order, and then God will have dealings with me. But no, from the beginning, God says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to send one to save you. You see it in the very first pages of the Bible when he tells Eve that she will have a son and the son will crush the head of the serpent. You see that same promise given to Abraham that Abraham would have a seed or a son and the nations would be blessed because of this son. You see the same promise given to David David, God says you will have a son and your son will have a throne and it will be an eternal kingdom. And not surprisingly, we see in our text here that the woman will conceive and what? Have a son. And it will be God with us. It's it's one way to look at the, the Bible is the Old Testament is really about promises that God has made and the New Testament is really the promises that God has kept. God keeps his promises. That's the way I want to look at the text today. I want to look at the promise being made in Isaiah. A lot of names and places you're probably fairly unfamiliar with. We'll try to understand it. It may feel like a bit of a history lesson at first. I just want you to hang with me. He makes these promises to Ahaz, King Ahaz of all kings. But then he keeps these promises, and we'll look at that when he answers in Matthew 1. So look with me in your text in Isaiah 7. Because God makes a promise, and he makes it to Ahaz. I want to tell you that Ahaz is a wicked king, right? He's, he's idolatrous. He is, um, yeah, pursues other gods. He even gave his children to the fire in worship to these other gods. So, so he's a wicked king, and actually all of Israel with him was fairly wicked. And you know what? God is merciful. He's kind even to ruined humanity. And and what he does is he sends Isaiah to go to Ahaz. Isaiah's a prophet. If you remember from chapter 6, he's just seen the glory of God. He sees God in his glory, and he asks to be, he says, here I am, send me. And you know what God does? He sends him. He sends him to Ahaz. Uzziah was a good king. He died. Ahaz was not a good king. And yet God is not finished with ruined humanity. Are you not thankful for that? That God is not finished with us? When we seem to be finished with him, he's not finished. So he sends Ahaz. Now, here's the context. The context is that Ahaz is the king of Jerusalem, the king of Judah. And he is now being threatened by two northern neighbors, Syria and Samaria, Rezin and Pekah. They're, They're threatening to crush Jerusalem. And Ahaz is nervous about it. You see that in verse 2 where he says, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. 
We have trouble with the Geneva Convention and our own understanding of what's fair. We have trouble understanding ancient warfare. Brutal, brutal, absolutely brutal. Brutal to the 10th power. And so they were terrified that they would be slaughtered by these two northern, these two northern kingdoms. And in his point of crises, God sends Isaiah with a word of comfort, with a word of peace, with a word of hope. Look what he says in verse 4. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. This is a wicked king that God is bringing grace to. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, those two nations to the north. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. So God is comforting Isaiah. It's not going to happen. I won't let this happen. He encourages him. But then what he does is he calls him to faith. He says, they will be destroyed. And he calls Ahaz to faith. Look in verse 9. He says, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. There's this engagement. He's, he, Ahaz is a wicked king. God is a merciful God. And so he sends Isaiah, and he says, if you're not firm in faith, you're not firm at all. So we have this moment of crisis. Who's Ahaz going to trust? Is he going to look to the machinery of men? Is he going to look to God? What's he going to do? What well, seems as Ahaz faltered, because in verse 10, Isaiah has to go again to Ahaz. And look with me at 10. He says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Any sign from the depths of hell to the heights of heaven. Something that we'd like periodically to have that kind of, you can ask anything you want. But we see the heart of Ahaz in his response. Ahaz says there, he says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. <clears throat> Ahaz was the king of Judah. He was to evidence faith to the nation. And here, don't, don't be surprised, don't be shocked, uh, don't be kind of um, yeah, taken off guard. This is a false humility. We know that Ahaz did not want to believe God. He, he, he was kind of being demure, but, but, but he, he didn't want to believe God. Why do I say that? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 16, he had already made a deal with the king of Assyria, the great superpower to the east. He had stripped the gold and the silver from the temple and sent it over to make an alliance with him. He had already made his, he had already made his bed. He had already planned to go with Assyria against these two northern kingdoms. He didn't believe. He wasn't firm in the faith. Ahaz, of all people, should have known it. God had made a promise, as I said to Eve. He made a promise to Abraham, as I said. He, he made a promise to David. Uh, David was, Ahaz was a descendant of David. Here's what he says to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Ahaz was in that line. He did not believe God. He was rejecting the covenant and the promise that God made, that yes, I will establish myself in the nation of Israel is a light to the world, and Ahaz chose not to believe. It was a failure in faith. It was an epic failure in faith. And so when you hear the promise that you and I are so familiar with, that a virgin will conceive and give birth, 
God is fatigued with Ahaz. This wasn't, this wasn't more encouragement. This was really almost admonishment, even discipline. Look what Isaiah says. He says, hear then, O house of David. So I want you to hear this as almost a rebuke against Ahaz and his faithlessness. He says, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, Isaiah is saying, oh, God will be faithful. Uh, God will bring the king that he's promised to bring. But you won't have any participation with him. You will have none with him. That I'll give you a sign. Now, when you look at, we just take this text out of its context and it really can do a lot of different things for us. We don't fully understand it. I want you to see that God is promising through the prophet Isaiah that God will give himself a sign, that God is faithful and that we are called to believe in him if you are firm in faith. If not, you're not firm at all. And Ahaz wasn't firm. Now, there's been a, a ton of literature written about this prophecy, this Messianic prophecy. Who's the identity of this child? Was it the son of Ahaz? Was it the son of Isaiah? Well, there's too much literature to cover as to who the identity of the first layer of this fulfillment would be. But here's what I'd like to ask you. When you consider the nature of the sign, so God offered a sign as far as the heavens and as deep as Sheol. When you consider the nature of the sign, it seems to be something more that's at play here. And when you consider the nature of the child that's prophesied, God with us. Are we to assume that a bunch of women named their children Emmanuel? No, no, the nature of this child is God with us. In chapter 8, 10, in the same section, this child is going to be the Lord of the land. And then when you go into chapter 9, which we'll look at next week, he's going to be the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor. Who is this child? No, no human first layer of fulfillment can tease out what Isaiah, uh, many scholars, Isaiah is seeing the Christ himself. He's seeing Jesus the Christ. It's the only one that can fulfill this text. And we'll get to that in a minute, but I still want to stay in Isaiah for just a minute. Because Isaiah, you know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he says that these things happened to them that is, all of the Old Testament history, it happened to them, the people of Israel, but it was written for our instruction. We need to learn from what happened to them. That's how we, that's a hermeneutic of the Old Testament. We can learn what happened to them. We can be instructed. And the first thing I want you, before we move to Matthew, whichever, we want to jump right to Matthew, just stop with me for a minute and look at God here. Do you see the mercy of God? I mean, look at Ahaz, this wicked, rebellious king, giving his own children to false gods, and God still appears to approaches him with mercy and kindness. I don't know what your experience with God is. I don't know the caricature you have of God, if he's kind of old and cranky or if he's old and silly. I, I don't know how you may form God, but, but the word of God is to form our understanding of God. And this tells us that God is immeasurable in mercy. 
Maybe you've seen yourself and you have just considered yourself kind of on the outskirts of God because of your past and your history and the sins that you've committed. And you almost think that, that, yeah, God has room in his kingdom for people who are better than me. He is approaching Ahaz with mercy. This needs to kind of reformat your understanding of the kindness and the mercy of God. But not just, do you see the mercy of God here? Do you trust in the power of God to save? Ahaz, again, is a foil. He's an example for us. He did not trust. He put his weight in the machinery of men. He put himself. And and you know, it's interesting, at the 17th verse, you see the judgment that would come to Ahaz through the people that he trusted. Assyria would come in and flatten Judah, destroy him. He put his faith in a man who would destroy him. Isn't this the way of false substitutes? Isn't this the way of our idolatries? Don't we worship things that ultimately don't satisfy, but then end up consuming us? In other words, we're called to put our trust in God. Uh, You know, crises are going to come. You know, crises came to Ahaz, and it revealed the reality of his faith. He could give pious words, oh, I don't want to test the Lord, but we saw the nature of his faith when crises came into his life. Crises may be in your life right now, or surely it may come to your life. And it will reveal what you believe about God. It'll believe, it will reveal much about you. It, it may be financial. It may be something related to your family or job. maybe health. Where are you going to trust? You know, there are many, you know, we need a new government. I just need a new job. I just need a new marriage. I just need new relationships. I need new friendships. We always turn to something new that will be, do we turn to God? That's what God is asking Ahaz. Believe in me. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You will not be established. Well, of course, we see that God made a promise. A virgin will give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. Look at how he kept the promise. I'll read it for you. It's in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Uh, But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. No less than an angel is giving us an interpretation of that passage in Isaiah. And Jesus is the one, Jesus is the son that was prophesied. Uh, Fully God, he's Emmanuel, he's God with us. And fully man, he is born of a woman. Jesus alone is sufficient to save us from our sins. Uh, This this is a, a mystery too deep to plumb. I mean, this idea, the incarnation, God enfleshed and has come to dwell among us. 
The implications for you and me are profound. They're profound then, they're profound now. They're profound now. In this sense that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. That is the purpose of the incarnation. You heard me read it. He has come to save us from our sins. Uh, Christmas is really a declaration, if you will, that you can't save yourself. That he has come to redeem. Uh, that Jesus Christ has come, as Matthew said, to take away our sins. Uh, with the coming of Jesus, a, a debt has been paid. Adoption has been secured. The, the wrath of God has been removed. I mean, starting back in Adam, you know, in Adam we all sinned, Paul says in Romans 5. Uh, so in our, in our being represented by Adam as the head of humanity, we have all sinned, and we've all fallen short of God's glory, and we all are rightly judged by God. But in Christ, our new head, our the head of a new humanity, we are made righteous. It's through the incarnation that Jesus had to be with us. He had to be fully God. Because who else could atone for the sins that we have committed against an infinite God other than an infinite Savior? So he had to be fully God to be a legitimate sacrifice, a legitimate atoning sacrifice. And yet he had to be fully man so that he could represent us, that he could be truly one of us, standing in our stead. That's why Paul writes, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that he might give them full rights as sons and daughters. In fact, he says in Hebrews chapter 2, he says, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that we, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Consider that. Jesus has come to take on flesh, to take on all of our sin, to stand before God, to bear his wrath, that we might bear his joy. That's why he came. Now, if you're here, you're with family, you're not a Christian, you know, Christmas often gets muddled in the joy and the celebration of gifts and time together, and, and I love that, and it's a wonderful thing about Christmas. Uh, but Christmas also gets muddled in the sense that Jesus is often relegated to coming simply to show us what love looks like, or to be an example of love, or for some to pay a ransom for Satan, to Satan for us. They come up with wild, wild theories. It, the theory is very clear. It's, it's, very, it's obvious in the text. He has come to save us from our sins. Now, when you hear the word sin, I don't want any of us here thinking of sin as an idiosyncrasy or a personality tick or errors in judgment. The issue is deeper for humanity. And I think over the history of mankind, you see that our problem is deeper. There's something fundamentally wrong about us. It's not just the actions that we do that are wrong. It's an attitude. It's a disposition. The way the scripture says it is, though we were made in the image of God, created for his glory, we actually have wanted to go. We willingly go our own way. We willingly want to be our own gods. We don't want to submit to God. The problem that we have is much deeper in the soul. We haven't given him thanks. We don't want to give him thanks. We don't want to give him glory. We want glory. We want to be the center. I mean, you may not have committed adultery, but you have lusted. You have wanted to. That shows you. That shows you the seeds of corruption are right there. You maybe haven't committed murder, 
But you have hated people. And you've hated them to the point where you almost wish they were dead. The seeds of corruption are there in every one of us. That's why Jesus had to come. Something outside of ourselves had to come save us. There's, no, there's nothing that we could generate within ourselves. And this is the offense of Christmas. This is what makes people really mad when you get to the heart of Christmas. Is you're telling them that even though you may have a can-do spirit, and you're a pretty good person, you cannot do it. You don't have it in you. None of us do. None of us do. We cannot save ourselves. And boy, that is hard to hear. That is hard to hear that, that surely with enough instruction and enough time and enough education and, and enough opportunities, we'll be able to make God satisfied with us. And he's saying, no way. Jesus had to be sent to save us. He had to take away our sins by taking them upon himself and giving us his righteousness. This is, the, this is the offense of the cross. You know, the birth of Christ can never be separated from the cross of Christ. They're two. They go hand in hand together. So, so the first implication is Christ has come to take away your sins. Let that be your point of rejoicing. Because at the end of the day, Christmas is not so much about receiving. It's, it, excuse me, it's not so much about giving. It's about receiving. And this is the hardest part of Christmas to admit it. This is why being a Christian is not an easy thing to do. Why? Because we have to admit that we need someone to come save us. That's why in the Beatitudes he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know they are poor. They have nothing to bring to God. He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first implication here, that he has come to take away our sins. But the other implication is that he has come to to exalt humility. Jesus has come to exalt humility. Do you realize that Jesus has been a trailblazer downward? Downward. Leaving glory to take upon himself flesh. He has humbled himself to the point of death. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He is lifting up humility. He is showing that the, the way to glory the way to greatness, the way to joy is downward. This is the path he has set for us to humble ourselves. Christmas is really about a time of humility for us, the humbling. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? He says, whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high, whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. That's what it means. The implication of the incarnation is that you and I love humility. And we pursue it. We, we fight that tendency within each one of us that we're right and that our opinions are best. And that we should get credit. And when people don't appreciate us, that it aggravates us. We should be the quickest to lay down our rights, to be appreciated, to be thanked, to be marveled over. We should just marvel over him. It bids us to come and be low, as he took the path of lowliness. But Christ has also come to assure us of the faithfulness of God, the promises of God 
are made yes in Christ with the coming of Jesus. Remember, he promised Eve. He promised Abraham. He kept the promise going to David, to Isaiah, and through the prophets. God is faithful to his promises. So what this incarnation shows to us is that God is trustworthy. You can believe, you can read the promises of God. You're going through financial strain. And you can read in Matthew, he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, drink, or wear. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. And that's when you trust. You say, you know, I'm going to trust that. I'm not going to fret and I'm not going to worry. I'm going to trust that God will give me what I need. Or you're you're facing a physical crisis. And he says to you, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. How much more important are you? And you say, I'm going to trust that. Because he is trustworthy. All of his promises are trustworthy. So we, as Christians, we ought to take the promises of God, because of the incarnation, we take the promises of God as like jewels in our hands. They're so valuable to us. Why? Because they lift us up. They strengthen us in the midst of trial and uncertainty. We ought to know these promises. But then I would also say to you this, that the the, uh, implication of the incarnation is that it gives us an anchor for our hope for a future. It gives us an anchor for our hope. So you hear the story of Jesus dying for our sins. We're going to celebrate at the table. And we think, great, we're in good shape. But where do we live? We live in a fallen world. We live where death is still claiming those that we love. We still face diseases that seem unbeatable. We face calamities that we can't explain. Satan still seems to rule and run around and cause havoc in people's lives. So we think, well, well, did he do it? Well, yes, the incarnation is the anchor for us to believe that, yes, our future is secure. We're longing for that coming. You know, this is why I've been so good. It's a time of waiting. You know, this is why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We want him to come. We want him to come and deliver us fully and finally. We want the full benefits of what Christ has done to come. We don't have them yet. They have been achieved. Redemption has been accomplished. But we have not consummated it yet. The wedding date has been set. Everybody's getting ready, but the wedding hasn't yet come. But it is coming. We have hope. We'll be with God forever. The idea of the incarnation is we now have a solid hope, a future hope resting and rooted in a past historical event that we will be with him forever. This is God's plan the whole time. Nothing's going to stop God from it. We dwelled with him in the garden. Adam and Eve walked with him in the cool of the day. Sin, when sin entered, that's what removed us from the presence of God. But God did not last long apart from his people. He calls Abraham, gathers a people around him, and has them build a tabernacle so that the presence of God can still be seen and understood. And that was then furthered in the temple, the permanent presence of God among the people, that they could go be with God. That's what God's always wanted. But then even more, Jesus comes among us. God in the flesh, no longer in a temple, but now you're not going to worship on Jerusalem, but you're going to worship God in spirit and truth. Why? Not because Christ has come, but... Christ left, right? He ascended to heaven. He said, that's good news for you because the Spirit comes and dwells within us. So now God's presence, the hope of glory, is within us. All of this leading to that final day when we'll be with God forever. 
That's what it's all moving to. Started there, it's going to end there. Revelation 21. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. Praise God for that. That day, that hope for that day is anchored in this day, in the incarnation. So we, we have much to be thankful for. This is a great mystery, no doubt. Hard to plumb the depths of it. It, 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 no story can compare it to it. No explanation can untangle it all. It, it, it happens to be both an invitation for you to believe. That's what he's calling. Ahaz, if you believe, you'll be established. If you do not believe, you will face the very judgment of God. It's an invitation to you now. But it's also an invasion. He has, he has entered our world. He has started his kingdom. It is expanding. And it will come to its completion. What will you do? It's an invitation and an invasion. It's something to marvel over, and it's something to shake over if you are not firm in faith. This is how we become Christians. And so the, the idea of just recognizing that I am insufficient in myself, and I must hope and believe and rest in all that he is. That's that step that repentance and faith that we speak about here. Let's take a minute. Let me just pray for us, and then I will uh, call the service forward. But, but you and each of us here have suffered. We've been disappointed, even disillusioned over broken promises. God made a promise, and he has kept his promise in Christ. Let's rejoice over that. Father, thank you for the grace and the mercy you've given to us. Thank you for your kindness. Father, we do not have the minds to understand all that it means, God with us. So by the power of your spirit and uh, through the clarity of your word, would you bring it to us afresh? Father, it's a familiar story that we don't fully understand. So would you give us the humility to sit before it? And just wonder, not just simply why you would do it, but let us wonder over all that it will accomplish in our lives. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, before we uh, serve the table, let me orient you. Again, I just take a moment <clears throat> to kind of take the scriptures that we've read and kind of draw your mind to this table. The table really um, is a good example of the tension that we find in the Christian life. You can call it a table of tension. I, I, I think it's a good reminder of the struggle that we have in this life. Uh, the, the table reminds us each month that we are, that we are sinners. We are. I mean, I mean, no matter how we excuse or how we justify or how we make light of our own sin, right? We all do that. Its ugliness is very clear. It's on display. I mean, if you wonder... Was our sin really that bad? Was it really that heavy? Well, then consider the cost that Christ has paid to bring forgiveness. His body, when you see the elder, when he shreds the bread, that was his body. When you look into the cup and you see 
the color, you're reminded that his blood was shed. Make no mistakes. I mean, Jesus bearing our sins and enduring the wrath of God was immeasurable. You cannot sugarcoat the darkness of our lives when you look at the centerpiece of our faith. Jesus bearing our sins and being crushed under the weight of God's wrath is sobering. And yet if we stop here, we miss all of it. We miss the whole thing. The tension is the deep joy that comes from the table. I mean, the sadness of sin is overwhelmed by the joy in Christ bringing forgiveness. The joy is knowing that the table assures us that we have been actually, not potentially, but we've actually been forgiven. The guilt has been removed. God did not overlook your sin. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He dealt with it fully, completely, and thankfully, finally. They've been paid for. By faith we've been cleansed. What this means is this. If you have been an adulterer and you've repented, you've confessed your sin, you've sought the forgiveness of God, you're cleansed. If you're a thief, if you're a liar, a glutton, envy, bitter, and you confess your sins, he washes you clean. When the woman who was a prostitute came to him, she placed her faith in him. He says, your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. They're cleansed. That's what this table assures us. This is the joy that we have. No longer do we carry the guilt with us. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. The leper came. He says, your faith has made you well. Go. You're well. It's past. So the tension is, we recognize the sin we're still, we do that which we don't want to do. And yet the joy, the joy of actually being forgiven. It's not a future hope, it's a present reality. Because it past occurred. We've been broken, we've been made clean. This is not a license to sin. This isn't justification. Hey, it can't be perfect. So it's not license to sin. It's a lease to a new life to live for his glory. And to enjoy him. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the attitude that we bring when we come to the table is a serious joy, a sobriety that's married up with savoring the one who has done this for us. So when you take that bread and you plunge it into the cup and you take it, that's the mark of one who has been cleansed and one who should be happy. Let's take a moment now and just ask God to understand this in deeper measure. And, and a key part of faith is our affections. Even ask him that your affections would be stirred. And then I'll pray for us.